Mic check, one, two, one, two. Mic check, one, two, one, two. Back for another episode of Taste to Consider Podcast. Back for another week. Another week ending, another week beginning. Recording a little a day late, but I'm still here. Shout out to all the listeners. Shout out to everybody who's supporting the podcast. I'm going to let this play for a bit. Rest in peace to DMX. Taste like a sit podcast. Taste to consider podcast. We back for another episode. Rest in peace to DMX, man. That's a tough one. Oh, rest in peace to DMX. I'm coming to you on a Sunday night. Uh, it's about 9.30. Um, uh, excuse me. I ain't first burp of the show. I ain't even get to the intro yet. Um, yeah, Sunday night, uh, I'm kind of tired right now, uh, you may hear it in my voice, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I gotta get the show out, you know, um, the show must go on, uh, yeah, I didn't record Saturday night because, I mean, I was tired, I just needed a break, uh, I needed a break, um, yeah. I was busy this week, uh, work-wise, um, as well as mentally. My mind was kind of busy this week. Um, yeah, but, you know, the, the show must go on. So I thought about taking a, a, a week off, but I was like, nah, I'm going to stay consistent. Because literally I've been going, uh, what, nine weeks straight, nine episodes straight. I could have swore it was, it's been more than that, but it's only been nine. So I was like, nah. <laughs> I was like, let me hit this uh tenth episode. So I'm mean, here, you got me for the tenth episode episode, ten weeks straight, and let's get into the show. It's a taste to consider podcast. I'm your host, Derek Silver, and we're back. Back for another episode. Yeah. Yeah. As you can see, I'm even starting off a little sluggish. I had the volume down on the <laughs> on the intro. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, back for another episode. Um episode 10, season three. Um, let me jump right into what I'm drinking. Um, I'm drinking, uh, well, earlier I was drinking some Jack Daniels, uh, cinnamon whiskey. I was over at my parents' house having dinner. That is, uh, 
That is what Sundays are reserved for. Um, so I had like two two glasses over there. So I'm home now. Um, down in the boom boom room, Rip's boom boom room, um, and I'm drinking uh, some Fireball cinnamon whiskey just to keep it consistent to what I've been already drinking. I ain't, I don't want to go too overboard, <laughs> um, but drinking uh, Fireball cinnamon whiskey. Um, that's always a a nice chill chill drink for me to have. Um, don't need no chaser. Just throw some ice in the glass, pour it up in there. I'm good. Um, nice taste to it. Um, hit the spot. So that's what I'm drinking tonight. I'm not smoking a cigar tonight. Um, I just don't. I'm just not in the mood to smoke a cigar tonight. So I'll reserve that for next next week's show. Um, what I'm smoking. Yeah, but this... Uh, Fireball, Fireball has always been one of my favorites. One of my favorites that I can just go hop to the liquor store and pick up is an inexpensive drink, but it got a good taste too, and it'll hit the spot. But yeah, like I was saying, uh, rest in peace, DMX. Uh, his family made a statement. I believe it was uh, was it Friday. I believe it was Friday. Yeah, Friday his family made a statement. They took him off life support. Um yeah, so rest in peace to DMX. Dang. Um DMX was one of my favorite rappers. He really was. Particularly for the fact that um around the time that he came out, he blew up, he released his first album was like a year or two after Pac was killed. And I gravitated toward DMX because of the aggressiveness of his music, as well as, you know, he was actually talking about something that resonated with me. Um, anybody that don't know, you know, DMX had his his uh, his demons, his, his issues or whatever, um, mental health-wise and all that. So, you know, that resonated with me. And just I, I just always enjoy people who actually, like, put themselves and what they were going through in their music. You can tell, like, uh, some of my favorite artists, Marvin Gaye, uh, Bob Marley, people like that, Tupac and stuff, like people who was actually talking about stuff that was going on in their life, in their music, you know, people who were vulnerable, not just, you know, not worrying about what people thought about them. So, you know, that's the personality I have to to an extent. So, you know, it would be natural for me to gravitate toward these type of artists. But yeah, DMX, he's one of my favorite rappers. He's definitely in my top five uh, of rappers. Um, yeah, this... I'm not going to say it necessarily hurt because um, the older I've gotten and the more I've gotten into my spirituality and stuff like that, I don't look at death the same way as I used to. I used to... Um, Honestly, when I was young, I used to fear death. Uh, I remember, like, growing up, always going to funerals and stuff, um, having having to drive, sit in the car, and, and ride down to North Carolina so many times to go to funeral, to funerals of people I didn't know. I was afraid of death because I was just so young and going to all these funerals. I didn't really understand what was going on. But the older I've gotten and come to understand uh energy and your spirit your soul and stuff like that i know that you 
once you transition from the physical form that there's more, you know, to life. You know, energy never dies. So, um, you know, it, it can be hurtful, but I do understand, you know, that there's more to just the physical realm of life. And I've come to accept it to some degree. Granted, as I've spoken about, I think, a couple of episodes ago, I haven't experienced yet in my life somebody passing uh, or transitioning that was really close to me. You know, I've had uh, grandparents, all of my grandparents have transitioned and stuff, but I didn't really have a close relationship with them. Had tons of family members who've, who've passed, but I didn't really have a close relationship with them. Um, like I said, I've only had close relationships with my pets, my dogs that <laughs> that have, that have uh, died. And uh, recently, um, I, I believe it's coming up on three or four weeks now. Mm, I believe four weeks um, that my my dog Rocco has passed. So I'm finally, you know, kind of getting a little normal with far as you know even coming in my coming in my basement you know recording my basement walking in my basement chilling in my basement but i still you know think about him at times when it comes to certain uh situations um so i'm not totally over it but you know i'm i'm to a state where i'm not emotionally um um expressive of you know thoughts or feelings of of him. So um that's a good thing. Um but I'll come back to DMX later. Um I believe that, you know, um talking about him is 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 much more important than just the intro, the intro introduction and the introductory topics of the podcast. So I will be coming back to uh DMX later. Um so we're going to start off with just a couple of things that, you know, have been going on that I I thought I'll, I'll bring up on the podcast. So I'll start with Paul Pierce. <laughs> Paul Pierce, he was recently let go from uh, ESPN for um, doing a live where uh, he had some strippers in the background and stuff. And I, don't, I, I heard, I didn't see the video. I saw like uh, screenshots of it. But I didn't see the video. But I know he definitely had strippers in the background of the video. He supposedly was, like, um, hanging out and stuff. And um, I think I heard that he was, like, uh, smoking in the video and stuff like that. So I'm not sure about that, but that's what I heard. But as far as, you know, him uh, having the strippers in the background and stuff, um, yeah, he got let go from ESPN. So um, I thought that was interesting. Uh, just for the simple fact that, you know, for one, he should know better. You working for a company that is owned by Disney. <laughs> um, and uh, I just always look at it like, damn, why did you mess this up? This was like easy money, especially the fact that, you know, you recently retired and stuff and you got your analyst job. You know, that's that's easy money. You just pop on the show every now and then and, and give you a little analysis of a game or or some players and stuff like that. And I guess he forgot um, the wording the <laughs> in his contract, because I'm sure that's why he got fired, because of something that was in his contract or, or morality clause or, or something like that was in his um, 
his contract. <laughs> but I just look at these situations like, man, damn. Uh, some black people just love to be to be seen in certain situations as opposed to, um, <laughs> you know, keeping some sort of comfortability in their life or, you know, you mess up a good thing because you just want to be seen to be to be down or to be in the mix or be be cool or something like that. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, you you kind of effed up a, <laughs> a, a good situation there, you know, because you wanted to go on live and show that you was hanging out with some strippers and smoking some weed, allegedly, you know, something like that. So, damn, that sucks. <laughs> Paul Pierce wasn't uh, necessarily one of my favorite players in the world. Um, I... I respect I respect this game, but I don't like his is I didn't like his basketball game, but I mean, damn, what can you do? That's crazy. Um what else? Got my notes and my outline. Let me make sure I don't miss nothing. Cause I'm always missing something each episode. Cause once I get going sometimes it's just like I forget about what I had. Uh, written down or planned out. All right. Um, yeah. So, moving along, uh, just talk about the the uh, Derek Chauvin trial. Um, the officer who who um, killed George Floyd uh, by putting his um, knee on on the back of his neck. So it was confirmed, um, a pulmonary, pulmonary expert confirmed that George Floyd died from a low level of oxygen, um, causing damage to his brain. And, you know, um, that pretty much su- supported previous testimony, you know, um, that's been laid out there saying how, you know, George Floyd died from, you know, Derek Chauvin's damn knee on the back of his damn neck. So the the defense was arguing that George Floyd was resisting by saying he can't breathe, which is crazy, but not surprising that they would come out and say that. And, you know, they the defense was trying to say that he was trying to argue that you know, Derek Chavon's weight wasn't fully on George Floyd's neck and all that other stuff. But we seen the video. We know what the hell is going on. So it's just a matter now, you know, I don't even, like, it's just crazy how all this is going. This this whole situation reminds me of the Rodney King situation, period. Just by the fact that we have the 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 killing on video. We have it on video. Just like back then with Rodney King, we had the beating on video. And you know back then the officers got off. I'm not sure Dirk Siobhan will get off, but I'm not sure that he will get the maximum sentence. And then we don't know what's going to happen to the other officers that were there that day. Um, It's just... I still haven't... I still haven't been watching um the trial by the way. I you know, I'll see the updates on social media and my my brother also sent me some stuff this week about what was going on. Um but one thing that that did kind of tie into this whole situation that came up this week that I did see on social media was um it was a 
um, body cam of a traffic stop where these two police officers um, pulled over an active military um, person. He's an Army lieutenant, and he was driving home in his car. He got pulled over, and... um, You know, they wanted him to get out the car. Particularly this one officer was doing all the, speaking all the commands. And what was pissing me off about watching the video was just how angry that officer was. Like, he was just acting like a little bitch. You know, how angry he was and the commands that he was giving. And then at one point, the, uh, the Army lieutenant, he said that, you know, I'm afraid to get out the car. And then the officer said, you should be. He literally said this on the body cam video. And it was like the officer, I felt like the officer was, was, and this, this, this is like every, almost every incident that I've had with an officer. They, they try to, um, they try to dominate you. And if you don't, if you don't, if you give them any type of attitude or anything like that, they get to the point where they get so angry and they try to dominate you even more and humiliate you and stuff. Like, and and this lieutenant, he was complying as as much as he possibly could outside of his his fear, you know. And that particular officer was just being a straight dickhead. And the other officer that was on the scene, you can tell that he wasn't feeling what the what the um the main officer was saying, you know, because if you watch the video, he was trying to like unlock the door so the uh the army lieutenant can get out and stuff like that. And the army lieutenant, by the way, he's a, a black man. Um and both of the officers were white. Um but yeah, but the the assisting officer, he was trying to open the door, and and the the main officer was telling him to move away and don't do it, and all this other stuff. You can tell the the assisting officer wasn't really feeling the situation. He wasn't feeling what the main officer was commanding and how he was he was conducting himself. But he he looked young, and the main officer is allegedly um, a veteran. Well, ain't no allegedly. He's a veteran police officer, so. I guess it don't even matter. You shouldn't be scared. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. But anyways, but it was what 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 ended up happening is, you know, they pepper sprayed him. The main officer pepper sprayed him and got him out the car and all this other stuff. And now the army lieutenant is suing the, the police department, you know, for, um, his traffic stop. And it's crazy because it's like you had all these people coming out talking about some Colin Kaepernick was disrespecting the military by kneeling and stuff like that. You know, such outrage about that. But you don't see no outrage with from the people, them same, the same people. You don't see no outrage from those same people with this situation right here. This is an active army lieutenant. Lieutenant. Like he he got rank. Crazy. But um 
last episode, I talked about the <laughs> the vaccines, and I said I wasn't going to talk about it no more. And I was serious. I, I'm not going to talk about it no more, as far as my opinion. But I'm still going. I'm still going to uh, throw throw some stuff out there that I've seen. And these are not my opinions. This is just stuff that I've seen that I've thought was interesting and should be shared. Uh, so. Uh, let me see. Okay, so in Michigan, there was 246 fully vaccinated Michigan res- residents that tested positive for COVID and three died. Fully, I'm going to just leave it there. <laughs> um, what else? Even last, even the week that just passed. There's been several Johnson and Johnson vaccine vaccination sites that have been closed down because of um severe reactions to the vaccine. Moving on. Yeah. Okay, that's the same thing. Two vaccine sites closed after adverse reactions. <sighs> Excuse me. Two Johnson and Johnson. Shot. Excuse me. Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines offer protection against COVID-19 for six months. Booster shots will likely be needed after six months. And this was reported by ABC7 Chicago. And moving along right into the next, well, part of the next topic is New York rewards illegal aliens. Let me put an emphasis on illegal aliens with COVID relief checks 10 times the amount given to American citizens. And the amount of those checks were, well, are, is $15,600. $15,600 to illegal aliens, also known as illegal immigrants. Emphasis on the word, the word illegal. And recently, um, the White House press secretary, um, during one of the press conferences, uh, she came out and said that the, uh, let me play it right now. Let me just go ahead and play it. Um, one on vaccine again. Um, is there any thought being given to a federally organized vaccine passport of some kind? Does the president see that maybe as some kind of tool that could be used, or would he lean more on the side of people who have raised objections over privacy and so on? Well, let me be very clear on this. I know there's been lots of questions. Uh, the government is not now, nor will we be supporting a system that requires Americans to carry a credential. Uh, there will be no federal vaccinations database and no federal mandate requiring everyone to obtain a single vaccination credential. 
as these tools are being considered by the private and nonprofit sectors, our interest is very simple from the federal government, which is Americans' privacy and rights should be protected and so, the, so that these systems are not used against people unfairly. There is a movement, as you know, in the private sector to identify ways that they can return to uh, events where there are large swaths of people safely in soccer stadiums or theaters. Um, and that's something that, uh, that's where the idea originated and we expect that's where it will be concluded. We will be providing um, some guidance which will look like an FAQ, uh, a frequently asked question, I hate acronyms, but uh, that provides important answers to questions that Americans have, in particular around concerns about privacy, security, or discrimination uh, soon. I don't have an exact date for that. Interesting. I find this situation interesting that, you know, she came out and said that the government is not now, nor will be supporting the system that requires Americans to carry credentials and how it's put on the private sector. But what's interesting about that to me is we live in a capitalistic society, so uh, why is the blame being put on you know, private companies and businesses and stuff, because I don't see them wanting to lose out on money. I just don't. I don't see them wanting to put in place vaccination passports or any type of credentials in place to lose money because everybody is not getting vaccinated. Um, but I have seen government officials come out and say that particularly New York came out and said that they were going to do vaccination passports. So I'm just a little confused by that. And, and you know, I I really don't trust anything the government has to say. So I thought that was a little interesting. But uh, moving along, let me see. Where am I at right now? I got screenshot i got a screenshot album i got a uh um outline i got stuff saved in text messages <laughs> to myself <laughs> i got stuff in my uh internet on my phone i got stuff all over the place i don't want to miss nothing <laughs> um let me see Okay, so speaking of the government, I'll just go right along with that. Um, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, which is the son of Joe Biden, uh, recently released his memoirs. And it was considered, it's considered a tell-all memoir. And he released it uh, last Tuesday. And what was interesting about that was, um, you know, he in that memoir he talks about his drug usage and all that other stuff. Uh, but there's been articles out about the stuff that he left out of his memoir, which is um, how... Which is how um, 
he he used his, his dad's reputation to get him out of certain situations, uh, drug situations and stuff like that. Um, dodging uh, any type of criminal charges against him. Uh, dealing drugs. Well, uh, having relationships with drug dealers, um, prostitutes, multiple run-ins with the law. Um, even at one point he, he had his own, uh, back in, uh, 2018, uh, doing like some, some illegal activities with drugs and prostitutes. He was, he was being guarded by a secret service agent, uh, He was making porn movies and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> it's just a whole bunch of crazy stuff. So, and it's always the talk has always been out there about you know Hunter Biden and the, all the illegal stuff that he's been into and stuff like that, and how you know his dad was so big on you know crime and drugs and stuff like that, but his own son was you know. Just having that party party. <laughs> so that just segues way into um, more news when it comes to Biden. So Joe Biden, I already brought up the fact that uh, in New York that they will be giving um, – $15,600 to immigrants, illegal immigrants. Recently, the White House uh, released it, and you can find this on uh, whitehouse.gov. The White House, the f well, let me say this, it's on the White House gov website but the funding is coming from the federal government specifically the the funding is coming from the Department of Health and Human Services allocating 49.5 million dollars from the American Rescue Plan to a new grant program for community-based culturally specific services and programs for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault who face additional barriers to services and safety, such as language, language access barriers. This program will expand services to domestic violence survivors from Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander communities. So, I find that very interesting considering the fact that this funding pops up around the same time that all of this these these so-called um attacks or violence against Asian Americans and I've spoke about it a couple of episodes ago on a few episodes a couple of episodes about how the narrative has been that the black community has been doing these, committing these acts of violence against the Asian community. 
The Democrats seem to be helping every demographic besides the black people who won them the election as well as the Senate majority. You might as well just say $50 million, $50 million grant going to the Asian community. Um, Joe Biden has already spent over $80 billion uh, for living arrangements for illegal immigrants. And you see also um, in New York, Cuomo is spending, is giving illegal immigrants $15,000. Let's just let's just round it up to sixteen thousand. Sixteen thousand dollars <laughs> uh to illegal immigrants. Excuse me. <laughs> but I mean like this is wild. Y'all don't I mean like and what's crazy about it is you have all the people who voted for Biden and Kamala and stuff. They just defending this. They defend. They they actually a, a lot of them are being quiet. Um, they have been quiet since all of this stuff been coming out. But like this is the stuff that like I've been talking on around the election time and stuff. Like we did all of this, all of this talking. One in Kamala, one in Biden. Basically, everything that people was afraid Trump was going to do, Biden is is actually doing it. Like, he really is. If you take a look at all the stuff that he's doing, when it comes to helping out every demographic, um, some of the stuff that has been popping up the past couple of weeks when it comes to um, rights, Second Amendment rights and stuff like that. He is doing that. Like, (laughs) it's like people are just turning a blind eye towards the stuff that he's doing. Biden's administration, it's just crazy. It's like, If anybody don't know what the HR 40 bill is, is um the HR 40 bill is is also is 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 known as the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. It is an act sponsored by Sheila Jackson Lee introduced in the United States House of Representatives January 3rd, 2019. So, That's out there, right? You have this Asian hate popping up going on out of nowhere. And without no act of Congress, no talking to them, no uh, studies, no uh, deliberations, no nothing, they just pop up and give them $50 million. No... talks, no studies, no nothing. They pumping out $80 billion for illegal immigrants. But now, this H.R. 40 bill has been out there since 2019, right? So now they saying that 
they have to do a further study into this HR 40 bill to see if, you know, so-called African-Americans or black people deserve reparations. But without, without no executive order, no nothing, they was able to just pump out this money for the Asian community and the uh, Hispanic community. Black people been out here getting killed, getting beat for decades, centuries. But soon as the soon as the Asian community get some attacks on them and stuff like that, then the government rushed to their rescue. But we can't get nothing. It, it's to the point where even if a if a police officer, a white police officer a white person anything does any type of violence against a black person it isn't even automatically classified as a hate crime it's always classified as something else they have to investigate if it's a hate crime but when it comes to the asian people getting harassed or some type of violence committed towards them or anything like that it's automatically labeled as hate automatically without any type of discussion Nothing is automatically labeled as hate. When we've seen uh, routine discrimination from the Asian community in the black community, as well as the white community, even the white Hispanic community. The Justice Department be having to go through all types of things, quote unquote, all types of things to find out if there's some hate against us. <laughs> but one, just any type of attack on the Asian person is, is classified as hate. It's, it's crazy. I mean, they, they, they spitting in our face, honestly. They're spitting, literally spitting in our face. But we continue to still support the Democratic Party. Still support them. They jump to the rescue of of other countries before they do anything for us. It's crazy. Well, let me let me play this reminder for y'all. So I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to do something that's only going to benefit black people. No. So I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to do something that's only going to benefit black people. No. So I'm not going to sit here and say I'm going to do something that's only going to benefit black people. No. I had to put that on repeat, you know, just in case if somebody didn't hear it clearly. And that's that's Miss Pearls and Chucks. Miss Chucks and Pearls herself, Kamala. She did said that in the interview, but they sure as hell doing a lot for the Asian community and these illegal immigrants. They don't want people to go to. I said I wasn't gonna talk about the vaccine, but damn, they <laughs> they they say they don't want people going to spring break 
but they damn sure let a legal immigrant come into this country. And this 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 right here is what I said a couple of uh, episodes ago. The Democrat Party is, is trying to build a new base. And this is why when Joe Biden went on, when he uh when he basically spoke to the quote unquote black leaders on that Zoom call, like he was their uh he was their parent or their master when he was telling them y'all need to get with the uh y'all better start aligning yourselves with the <laughs> with you know the Hispanic and Latino community. He knows he was telling he was telling them right there. He was sitting there telling them right there. We building a new base. And that base is going to be the Hispanic and Latino community. And that's that's what they're doing. I mean, as plain as day, that's what they're doing. They're bringing, they're, they're allowing them to come over here, giving them money, giving them perks to build their base, to build a new base. And we're going to be, we're going to be sitting behind, behind. And I'm about to play another clip for y'all. And this is from uh, Dr. Claude Anderson. And this was by, he did this shit. He said this back in 2015. You mentioned that blacks will be pretty much a permanent underclass in America by the year 2015. Why the year 2015? 2015 because what, I, what I've concluded from analysis is that there are going to be a converging of, of social factors nationally and internationally that's going to place blacks in a permanent status of underclassship. And one, we, we anticipate by that point in time, based on all the research that's coming to us, that the next generation of whites going to be more anti-black than they've been since the Civil Rights Movement. Two, we anticipate, by the same token, about 86 million Hispanics coming into the United States and about 41 million Asians by that point in time, mm -hmm. which is going to kick black folk out of being the majority minority in the society, mm -hmm. uh, down to a minority minority. We've been number two in the society for 400 years as a group. We're going to become number four. And, uh, and if we have not gotten anything after being number two for 400 years, you guess what's going to happen when we become number four? Because at that point in time, all the new groups coming into America, they're coming in higher than we are because this country operates off of a preferential acceptance program, mm -hmm. which means that groups are coming in based on skin color, they're going from the lightest down to the darkest, light, yellow, brown, black. And that's what our immigration laws are based on. And black folk would not be able to penetrate through those groups to get to the white society uh, when that happens because those groups owe us nothing. They don't understand our problems and they are competitive with us and we don't begin to be a little more aggressive about being in a competitive posture. They're going to eat our lunches. I'm sorry. He didn't, he, didn't he didn't say this in 2015. I meant to say that he said by 2015 that all of this was going to happen. And I mean, it's pretty, he pretty much prophesied it. I mean, look what's going on right now. They're giving money to the Asian community, giving sympathy towards the Asian community, and they're doing the same thing with the Hispanic and Latino community. I mean, like, <laughs> he prophesied this, Joan. I wish I knew when exactly he did this interview. Let me see. In 1995, he fucking said this shit in 1995. Dr. Claude Anderson. He did this interview uh, on the, the Detroit Black Journal in 1995. 
It is 2021. He said by 2015. Man. And we we know we already know the Asian community don't fuck with us. We already know the white, Hispanic, and Latino community don't fuck with us. I told you plenty of times about one of my uh old part-time jobs when I was working with majority of Hispanics. And they all considered themselves white Hispanics. And the way that they acted towards the the um, the black people who who worked with me, like they act like they was above us. And and this is stuff that and and even before I started working that job, like my dad, he warned me about this. My dad warned me that you have these uh, white Hispanics that consider themselves white that look down on you. And this is what I'm. This is what I'm talking about. Like, the Democratic Party is building their base. They're getting ready to go on a, a, a an election win run. You know, that's what they. That's their goal right now. They're building the base. It's crazy, man. It's, it's crazy because. We be so blind to this shit. We just sitting around just trying to have a good time and all this other bullshit we we be doing. Oh boy. But um not to worry though, you know. We got the the Black uh Lives Matter um organization to help us out, you know what I'm saying? You know, we we in good hands, we'll be all right, you know. The 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 Black Lives Matter co founder um Patrice Khan Coolers. She just, you know, uh bought a million dollar home. Um, you know, so we gonna be good. <laughs> um, yeah, we gonna be good. You know, she's been getting a lot of backlash for buying her her million dollar her million million dollar residence that has a a small uh airport in it, you know, the airport uh to accommodate small airplanes. Um it's a big old, you know, big old plot of land. She got um a nice runway for small airplanes, studio apartment on the on the little ranch and stuff that she got going on. She's getting backlash for it, but you know, I was just talking about uh, Tamika Mallory and with her endorsements that she was getting from Cadillac and stuff like that, and this is what I'm talking about right here. And it's not to say that you can't be compensated for your work, but when it comes to situations where the distribution of the funds that you're you're collecting from these uh, fundraisers and stuff like that that's supposed to be helping. Uh, families, uh, victims of families of victims that you know were killed by the police or any type of uh, hate crime or anything like that, and you got the families complaining and stuff. But then you buy million dollar homes and having endorsements and and doing poems on the uh, Grammys and stuff like that. And there's some questions that's going to be going to be out there, and then. Um, one of the other things that the co-founder is getting backlash for is the fact that she started a 
a for-profit company called Black Lives Matter Global Network. And I'm not sure what what they do or what they're going to be doing, but it's it's, it's a for-profit network. Um, I'm not sure if it has anything to do with, like, um, TV, radio, or whatever, but she's getting backlash for that. And we all know that the Black Lives Matter uh, organization has given a considerable amount of money to the Democratic Party. Um, There's been a lot of stuff out there that says that it was... The actual organization is a uh, was was founded by a you know the Democratic Party and they use it to basically uh, f- funnel money and to fund their you know their party. But you know that's just all speculation and rumors and stuff like that. But I mean that's what it looks like. And this whole this this whole situation, like you know, you can have this argument that is is similar to like when pastors are in churches and they got their million dollar homes and their fancy cars, and some of them got planes and stuff like that in these mega churches and stuff. But then you got poor people sitting in your congregation, uh, losing their homes but still able to tithe and stuff like that. But, the you know, the, distrib- the redistribution of the wealth is just is only going toward the head, the head person in charge, you know. So we have, this converse- we have this conversation, this argument, this agreement, debate, whatever, all day long about whether it's right or wrong for, you know, somebody to get compensated for stuff like that. But I just thought it was interesting and, you know, so had to bring it up. Let me see. Am I done with that? The mansion, by the way, is 1.4 million. 1.4 million, yes. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm just going through uh, my screenshots and stuff and looking at some of the things, some of the repeating things. They're giving them these illegal immigrants $15,600. And shoot, we'd be lucky that some of the you know people in the black community even got their stimmies. And it's crazy because I was talking to my barber uh, Friday when I was getting my uh, shape up. And he, we was talking about how, you know, we live in Prince George's County. Prince George's County is in uh, Maryland. And it is, uh, I'm not sure if it's still the number one uh, 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 richest black community in the country. I know at one time it was. Uh, but he was he brought up the fact that you know we we got these beautiful homes, beautiful neighborhoods in Prince George's County, these million dollar homes, all these you know uh, wealthy upper middle class people, uh, upper class people um, in Prince George's County, but we have no um, 
nice restaurants in this area. All the nice restaurants is in the white areas of Maryland. Uh, we All we have is a lot of fast food and uh, carryout type places, but we don't have a lot of fancy restaurants in Prince George's County. Um, what I can think of, the only fancy restaurants we may have in Prince George's County is at the Harbor, uh, the National Harbor or the uh, MGM, MGM Casino. But other than that, nope. We got to go to, say, like, Annapolis, Baltimore, uh, Virginia, Northern Virginia, uh, these certain parts of D.C. to to get a nice restaurant. But in Prince George's County, is as wealthy as it is, all we got is fast food and carryout places. Uh, I'll just be like, man, a lot of this shit is in front of our faces, but we just choose not to see it because we so concerned about we so concerned about just getting money and trying to look look good or or have something over the next black person or being able to be in a position to rub elbows with our oppressors at times, but yeah. All right, I'm done with that. Let me take a sip. I took more than a sip. I just finished the drink off. So, man, getting into the news of DMX once again. Uh, rest in peace to DMX. Uh, condolences and prayers to his family and friends, and to all you know, all the other fans that's that's out there that's feeling some sort of pain or grief from his passing. And it was kind of a emotional roller coaster these past couple of days when it came around to DMX. First, we had like I believe it was I don't know if it was Thursday night, Thursday where there was claims about him being dead and stuff like that, and people was just blasting it all over social media and the internet and stuff like that, and it came out that it wasn't true and stuff. But then Friday, he got a statement from his family that's saying that they took him off life support and all that other stuff. So that was a crazy situation, um, just to see all the people on social media and stuff saying, you know, he dead, he dead, and he wasn't, you know, declared dead as of yet and stuff like that and it was kind of frustrating to me honestly because I just looked at it like you know people are just followers and we just it's just a collect we just jump on shit we just like to jump on shit and just to be able to talk about it and stuff like that um but it was interesting because um the same same time that DMX passed, um what's this by my name? Um Prince Philip, he passed as well at the age of ninety-nine. And the Daily News, they the on the front page they said beloved royal is gone at age ninety nine, the prince. 
and the rapper, brilliant but troubled musician, dies at 50. And like, what kind of bullshit is that? And we all know about how corrupt and, and terrible the fucking royal family is, and they painting this picture of DMX being the flawed one, but the prince just being so beloved. On oh, this straight bullshit. <laughs> and then you had another uh, reporter on the New York Post. I forgot her name. It was Sir or something. And she wrote that article about DMX's money troubles and, and all that other stuff. Like, and everybody on social media was just blasting her dumbass and stuff. Like, you just see how how race is just involved in, in, in everything. Like, we just can't get around that shit. But moving on, there was a uh, one thing that I thought was, was real cool. There's a report out there saying that Jay-Z and Beyonce are buying back DMX's masters for $10 million, and they're and they going to give it to uh, his 17 kids for free. And I thought that's that's a cool gesture, particularly for the fact that DMX and Jay-Z had, like, uh, some some kind of uh, misunderstanding or some type of, some type of beef when Jay-Z was the uh, CEO of, um, or the president or whatever of Def Jam. And at the time that DMX was there, and DMX didn't felt like Jay-Z kind of did him dirty in the situation. But, so, that's a good thing. Um, but just thinking about DMX, man, like DMX like made it made it cool to to be vulnerable. Like he was a grown ass man being vulnerable out there, crying, doing his concerts and stuff like that, crying doing interviews, you know, saying his prayers. He was crying and stuff like that. He was always uh transparent about his struggles with uh substance abuse um the emotional abuse that he he uh suffered from as a child and stuff like that and it was just like as i said earlier like you know that type of stuff resonated with me um just to, to see see that and to hear it in his music and when you think about it, excuse me, DMX is like a representative for a lot of, excuse me, damn, I'm sorry. He's like a representative for a lot of black men right now. And a lot of black men should be, you know, learning stuff from DMX. The fact of that it's okay to be vulnerable, you know, it's not weak to be vulnerable. And just the fact that, you know, that a lot of black men are going through stuff that we don't get help for, we don't talk about, we don't discuss with each other. Um, you know, we a lot of the things that we go through, we we are uh, filling filling the the voids with some type of substance, whether it be drugs, alcohol, sex, uh, chasing money, all of that. You know, working too much. There's there's so much more to um, filling the void of your life than just drugs and alcohol. You know, people, there's so many ways people um, fill voids in their life. With, and there's so many vices out there. And 
it's a lot of black men out here that's battling with some sort of trauma, some sort of mental issue, anything. But, you know, it's, it's been put out there so much that, you know, we have to be so hard and we can't show vulnerability and stuff that we keep a lot of shit in and we suffer for it. And we put a lot of people through the ringer uh, with us because we're suffering. So we got people around us suffering with us or we putting them through it. So I think DMX is like a perfect example, a perfect lesson for for all of us. And, you know, I've been hearing like a lot of people say, you know, like it, he made it cool to be vulnerable and stuff. But like y'all see it as that. But like, is everybody really truly seeing it as that? Because nobody is everybody is still on that, you know, I got to be hard. I got to show this image i gotta present this i gotta make sure i don't i don't show no weakness or no feelings or you know it's 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 frustrating to me because i've gone through it i go i still go through it to some degree and i see so many people that i'm associated with go through it but they just playing this role and it's just like it's so evident that they're hurting. And now and as I was saying, like, um just around the time that DMX came out, like it was kinda, you know, refreshing because it was just around the time that, that Tupac passed and it was like he was feeling that he really was feeling that e- emotional void and in hip hop when the around the time when stuff started to become shiny suits and bling bling and money, fast cars and women type shit, you know, it was like DMX came out and it was just he was just him. He didn't care about nobody else or what everybody else was doing. He was just gonna be him, regardless. And that's why it was easy for him to be vulnerable. It was easy for him to cry. It was easy for him to say a prayer in his songs, on his albums or whatever, because all he was concerned about was doing him. And it's kind of it's just sad that he had the demons that he was dealing with. But it's sort of like in my eyes, it's sort of like, you know, um, it was part of the plan because if, if he didn't, if he wasn't struggling with those demons and stuff like that, he wouldn't have been able to be the example that he was. But he will always, DMX will always be um, at the top of my list of, of like, stars or human beings period because of that that example of just not being afraid of being vulnerable and being transparent and then there's just another example of you know so many people particularly black men that's walking around undiagnosed and untreated um i it's crazy because I just I see so many guys that just swear they ain't got you know they got it all together, uh, and 
they, you know, they don't trip off of things or, you know, um, stuff ain't that serious and stuff like that. I mean, shit, I used to be like that, so nonchalant about stuff. But deep down, it it really is, you know, you really hurting and stuff like that. But you played a role for so long that, you know, it just comes natural just to be nonchalant or just to, to brush shit off and to say that stuff don't affect you. But not realizing that the anger that you have or the irritability that you have is is actually that's that's actually showing the <laughs> the emotional stuff that is being trapped inside of you, being held inside of you that you're not letting go of. And it just makes me think back when uh, DMX was on um, Ayala, Fix My Life, and just how bad that situation went. It, um, it got to the point where Ayala was like, she not even going to deal with DMX no more. But It's difficult for a lot, like, just thinking about that episode, it's difficult for a lot of people, particularly men, to be confronted with with certain things that they they are doing, quote-unquote, wrong, or uh, they could be doing better. And if they're confronted, it all depends on who they're confronted by and how they are confronted, that it don't always go so well. It, it really don't. <laughs> And a lot, a couple of things that um, Ayala confronted DMX about, it just didn't go well. Um, and I kind of like look at it like, I kind of question the fact like, did Ayala like give up on him, or was this all just for TV or whatever? But deep down, I mean, if you were a uh, mental health professional or uh, social worker, um, counselor, coach, whatever. You sh that, that should be something you expect, you know, for people to give you some type of resistance and stuff when they're confronted with certain things because they may not just, they, they may not be uh, aware of it yet or it may be a soft spot in their, in their life where, they do feel the guilt of doing wrong and stuff like that, but they just need to be approached in a different type of way to for them to see that, you know, they can handle the situation in a better way and stuff. Because, shit, I've been in plenty of therapy sessions where I didn't like the shit that the therapist was saying, but I'm to the point where I want to heal so bad that I'm open to hearing a different point of view because I don't always agree with what the therapist says. Um, I definitely don't, but I'm always open to hearing a different perspective, you know, because when it comes down to it, nobody is going to know your pain or uh, your trauma, or the path that you're walking better than, than you are, you know? So that's why it's always important to be like totally honest when you're in therapy and stuff like that. But um Yeah, DMX, man. Earl Simmons. He was a he was a good one.
Um, yeah, we, I just like, I just keep going back to this, like, fellas, like, black men, we got to stop just, like, being so silent and stuff about things that we're going through, like, Men, we just don't, black men, we just don't have uncomfortable conversations. A lot of us just don't have uncomfortable conversations. But it's difficult being in in, in, in groups with people who uh, portray uh, this image of not, that stuff don't bother them and, you know, stuff ain't that serious or I just don't care. It's just, it's it's hard to open up to people like that, you know, and it's and it's hard to kind of hold people accountable that think that way because I don't know, it's just it's just weird. Like masculinity is just it's good. It has its its, its positives, but then it has its negatives just based off of how society has has you know uh, geared masculinity and I, I i truly believe that's why you know there's a high rate of there is a high rate of suicide amongst men and i believe it's because you know we hold in a lot of things and we don't have uh spaces to we don't have uh safe spaces to open up and, and talk to other black men people that look like us I didn't really I'm sorry eating the ice I didn't really come to the conclusion where I absolutely needed to go to therapy until my mentor who's an older black male told me that I need to go to therapy you know I didn't really consider it until he kept talking about it you know he was giving good advice, but he was still, and he's and he's a pastor. He was still giving me good advice and stuff like that, but he was encouraging me to go to therapy. And if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be in therapy today. You know, I wouldn't have gotten, I wouldn't be where I'm at uh, emotionally and mentally if it wasn't for him encouraging me to to go to therapy. And this just goes back to everything always, you know, Stuff stemming from our childhood, you know, a lot of the things that we're we're just big ass kids going through the same shit that we went through when we were children, just in a bigger body and dealing with different people. The stuff that the, the traumas, the the traumas, the Excuse me, the traumas, the bad things, all of that. We just repeating the cycles. We just straight up repeating cycles. You know, we just get gotta get out of this expressing feelings is is not a weakness. I mean shit, that that's strength right there. You weak if you if you holding on to it. 
And it kind of brings me back, like, just thinking about what was interesting was, like, even before DMX passing and even before he had his heart attack or whatever, um, I came across a, a post on social media um, about social anxiety. And I still deal with social anxiety to a degree. And it's crazy that, you know, I saw this this post and I put it down as something that, you know, I'll talk about on the podcast because I've talked about social anx- my social anxiety, well, social anxiety before. I don't want to say my social anxiety because I'm bigger than that. So I would say the social anxiety that I struggle with from time to time. And, you know, DMX, um, he's talked about, you know, his struggles with substance abuse and stuff like that. And and I've had my my struggles um with substance abuse when it came to uh dealing with social anxiety. And let me read the post real quick. It says, if you have social anxiety, your first two drinks don't actually count because they just make you turn into a normal person. And I saw that that uh that post and I was like, damn, that ain't nothing but the truth. Because it took me back to the days where I used to always just, when I used to be in the club. Um, and even when I would struggle to go to the club. Um, my social anxiety, the social anxiety that I dealt with uh, controlled my life. And I still, like I said, I still deal with it to uh, some degree. Still deal with it. When I get invited to to do things, um, when there's places I want to go, um, I still deal with it. Um, it's, it's it lingers. It's not as bad as it used to be because back in the day when I had um, a crew of friends where I used to always go to the club with, and they'd be like, "You trying to go to the club and stuff like that?" It'll be a lot of times where I just didn't go. And times where they would invite me on trips and I wouldn't go. Not because I didn't want to or I didn't have the money. It would be because of my social anxiety. I would be literally scared to go. Because in my, I would play out scenarios, negative scenarios in my mind before I even got to these places. Or before, you know, whatever day came or whatever. Like, it, it literally just had me just canceling plans or not going to the point where um because my friends didn't know it hurt relationships and like I said I still I still deal with it to a degree so you know um I get invited places um people want me to do stuff go on trips and stuff like that but some I've I've gotten better. I, I I'm able to jump over those hurdles, even to the point where now you know I do things by myself, and that's something that I worked with with my former therapist. But yeah, just thinking about that that post or whatever. Yeah, I used to go into the club. I used to just make sure I have a couple of drinks to what I used to always say, uh, get me loose, you know. Um, because that's what, in my mind, that's what, how I would feel in my body. I would need those those first couple of drinks or those shots or whatever to get me loose. So I wouldn't have that that uh, nervousness or that, that fear or that 
that shyness or that quietness or that nonchalantness or that introvertness around me, you know? Because those would be all the those would be all the words, the other words to be used for my anxiety. And like I even que- I still question to this day if actually am I a true introvert or is it just because of my uh is it just because of dealing with social anxiety and depression in the past? And even with me coming out with it a few years ago and talking about it on my blog and social media and stuff like that, people still don't believe it. People still got their own fucking conclusions. They think I'm being uppity or or stuck up or whatever fucking thing that they think. You know, people be having their own insecurities and projecting on you, even though you sitting here telling them what the fuck it is. <laughs> but, yeah, that's why at times, like, even with DMX passing or whatever, like, it, it was... It's all good that you know he was such a vulnerable person and and um transparent and stuff like that. But I looked at it like, yeah, it it worked. It, it worked with him because he was a celebrity to a degree. Because you know when if a normal person do it, there's always some bullshit behind it. You know, people don't believe it or they question it or they you know projecting their this shit on you to come up with a conclusion of why you don't want to hang out or or something like that. But yeah, the the drinking, like I see it with people who I hang out with or I have hung out with. They do the same thing. They need them drinks in them to loosen them up and stuff like that so they don't feel nervous as and so they can feel like they they're being themselves now. Once you know they 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 shook it off, you know, they got them drinks in them and stuff like that. They can go ahead and have a good time or or be themselves. So, you know, that substance abuse is real and it's, it's out there in plenty of forms, whether it's forced on you or you feel that you need to do it or something like that. It, it's definitely real. Definitely real. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the past episodes where I, I, I really talked about it. I believe... Um, I believe the episodes that I really talked about it was um um is it I know one for sure is uh in season two uh where I talked about my substance substance abuse and social anxiety to a degree was uh living in social distance and that was uh season two that was like episode two of season two. But I got previous episodes in season one and season two where I've talked about plenty of times where about social anxiety and and stuff like that and how I cope with it. So you can always go through and 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 find the episode in the descriptions of, of each episode. But yeah, it's definitely real. Um but I'm gonna finish off the podcast with uh a review of um a review of the Amazon Prime show Dem that was released. When was it released? Friday? Was it Friday or Thursday? What? Well, yeah, it came out Thursday at midnight, which was Friday, which was Friday midnight, but you know, consider Thursday. Still, but it was 10 episodes to the show. I watched all 10 episodes in a day 
in less than 24 hours for y'all so I can review it on the show. So let me start out by saying, so we all know this show is um, executive produced by Lena Waithe. There's been a lot of uh, controversy about the show on uh, social media with the woke community and people feeling like, you know, this is more, as I said, I think it was last episode, I was like, um, how I consider it is uh, horror trauma. Trauma horror. Or I think that's what I said, trauma horror. But I said I still was going to watch the show because it was coming from a different angle. It wasn't your typical slave uh, type stuff. It was coming from the angle of a, of a black household moving into a um, all-white community in Compton, California. And, you know, it was touching on the, uh, the angle of, you know, real estate and all, you know, all the things that have to do with real estate and living in the all-white community and stuff like that. So it was coming from a different angle as opposed to a slave movie, even though I still looked at it as trauma horror. But I was like, I'm going to watch it just to see what it's about. So I took a few notes. So I'm gonna run through this, these notes real quick. Talk about the show, and we we can end it. So let me start out by saying, if if you are easily triggered by hate, racism, all that type of stuff when it comes to being a black person, and you're triggered to the point where you might do something that you shouldn't do or it's going to affect your mental and emotional uh, health, then you shouldn't watch it because this show is wild. It is wild. It takes you through a lot. Literally, it takes you through a lot. Um, I found myself in the show very angry at times. Um well, a lot of anger. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say a lot of anger. It wasn't even at times a lot of anger, um, and that was it. But I can see how there could be a lot of different emotions um, triggered from that. But my main emotion was anger. <laughs> so, and none of my notes are any are in any particular order. I took the notes while I was watching each episode and and some in the order of the notes deal with how the episodes went, but at times they I had to pause the show when I was just coming up with things that I thought about or that I saw from the show. So a lot of the stuff is surface level stuff. Um but let me just start out from the top. Okay, so from what I saw from the show is that it spoke to uh, black people's PTSD um, in areas of, you know, certain areas of society, work, home, home life, and family. I definitely... S- saw how white people are very threatened by by us in this show. Um, particularly white women 
the spotlight was placed on white women a lot um, on this show and their place in society, uh, particularly home life and family life. Um, There's stuff about self-hatred, you know, wanting to please a white person because of your your self-hatred. How white women are very dangerous and have been very dangerous for the black community in the past. And in my in, just in my evaluation of things and things that have gone on in history, that white women have been the driving force behind a lot of the racism and white supremacy in this country, particularly based off of them uh, manipulating their their husbands and the. Um, the pressure that they felt that they had to put on their husbands because of their place in society and seeing a black people um, on the same level as them. What I also noticed and what I seen that was displayed in the show was just the, the stresses of racism and how it affects the family and the home life, how it affects, you know, black people's family, the family and the home life and um, things not being talked about, tensions between the husband and wife disagreeing on on certain things or, you know, not always being on the same page as far as um, how they how they would want their family to progress in America there's tension you know there's tension between the the husband and the wife there there's always been some sort of of tension on how the black family should progress what I also noticed was uh, white people always are waiting for us to prove to them stereotypes and narratives that just aren't true you know, um, the angry black woman, the angry black man, or, you know, us being monkeys or some shit like that. Like, this this is how deep the show gets in my eyes. Um, also, black men... Uh, not feeling validated unless they were rubbing elbows with, you know, the white men. Speaking to their self-worth, their self-value as a man. Um, how the black women, the black wife in the, in the black family uh, wanted to be, felt more comfortable being with her own as opposed to being in, just sitting in a neighborhood full of white women, you know. And I'm literally, like, looking at my notes and picturing the the, the parts of the episode <laughs> when I wrote down these <laughs> this stuff. Um, and how, like, seriously, and 
this is and this just coming from the show but us knowing it taking all of this really from real life white people white people are the violent ones you know they aim to provoke us to be violent you know that's why they sit there call us nigger or do things to try to provoke us to perpetuate those stereotypes and those narratives you know so they can feel validated in that and um outside of the 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 surface level stuff that I've already been talking about I do like just based off of certain things that I've seen in the show is that there's a deeper spiritual presence that is is between white people and black people there's like a a war between between our spirits the energies like when you think about racism hate uh supremacy jealousy all of that those are energies and just on a deeper level it's a war it's a war of energies it's literally a war of energies the imagery of this show will be triggering like just going back to how the the show escalated from episode one all the way to episode 10 the imagery will be triggering it really will be one of the things that i never i never really uh paid too much attention to until i seen it on the show was like there's a greater fight between women uh black women and white women there's a greater f- there has always been a greater fight for the for um specifically fighting to protect their home fighting to protect their family fighting to protect the present the present moment that the family is in but when it comes to the black men and white white men they're more focused on protecting their image, their status, and their legacy, which is, you know, the future. And But then when I was thinking about, like, those two situations, when it comes to that fight between the black women and white women, it seems as though that's why it seems as though that the fight that fight or that that energy is being dissolved a lot or it's being targeted by white supremacy to the point where they want it to dissolve just off of them trying to focus so much on um, pushing black women into the feminist movement. And we've, and I, we've seen it over the decades, um, back in the, back around the time doing welfare and stuff like that, where literally the, the black women had to, kick the black men out of the homes in order to receive government assistance and stuff like that. And you see it to this day. 
uh, particular, like even just talking early with the Black Lives Matter movement and how if you go on to the at one point on the Black Lives Matter website, they were basically talking bad about the black family and focusing on the LGBTQ community and the black feminist movement and stuff like that. There's there's like a a a greater push to have the black the black women separate themselves from the black man. And this and even taking away from the decades, shit, this goes centuries, this go back to slavery time. I mean, I talked about this about the Willie Lynch syndrome. I mean, it's literally that's what Willie Lynch spoke about, you know, separating the black man from the black woman. And what was interesting is I recently saw an article on The Root. Um, this was back in late March, um, and it was talking about how um, the Ford Foundation was giving a $15 million, um, $15 million to fund to the Black Feminist Fund. And this it. And this is what I'm talking about. It's like corporations, government, stuff like that are really focusing on separating the black women from the black men. They're focusing heavily on this black feminist. All right, let me pick back up on my notes. Where is that? Um And just like with the on the show, you have the black family moving to the community or whatever, like being the first black anything, particularly a conscious black person, is so stressful and can have so much pressure on you because you feel as though you have to do so well in order for all the other black people to be included in into that space or whatever. So you just feel so much pressure and so much stress on you. One of the things I definitely thought was weird about the show was uh, when I would see the viewer discretion of the show, they would never put anything on there. Well, at least I didn't see. I'm not sure. You know, I may have missed it, but the times that I... I checked and paid attention, the viewer discretion would never put anything on there about hate or racism. And I thought that was interesting. The show also highlighted, I already said how, it, you know, they were coming from a different angle, it just wasn't a slave movie and stuff like that. They went into real estate and stuff. So the show did bring attention and it highlighted the home loan, the bank industry, you know, blacks coming into white neighborhoods, the white people moving out because of black people coming in and the property values going down and how these situations would benefit the banks because the banks would be able to charge high interest rates to the black families because the black families was just so pressed to be in these white neighborhoods. And then they they will win even either way because they were making a, a shitload of money off of these high interest rates from the black black family and then if the white people in the neighborhoods push the black people out then they would default 
on their, their mortgage loans, and then the banks would still win because they would just take the house back and sell it again. So this was like they highlighted this on the show and show how like a, a, banks use this as as a tool. They use this as a tool to allow black people to move into these white neighborhoods, even though like the homeowners communities in these neighborhoods had specific s- stuff in their bylaws that say that no Negroes can live in the neighborhood, but the banks, but because it wasn't enforceable by law that the banks would sell these homes to these black people, even though they knew that the homeowners associations and stuff didn't want these Negroes in their neighborhoods and stuff like that. But the banks just saw it as, you know, they they making money on top of money. And then they they even talked about how even when, even in black neighborhoods, black people didn't want their neighborhoods all black because of the property value. So that just shows you like our mental illness from shit like that as well. We 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 so caught up into the same things that they, we've, we've been programmed with the same hate that they're showing towards us. Another a big thing about the show is that they, they basically, you know, they show how, well, what I saw from the show. And this is just, everything I'm saying is what I saw. So I don't know, this is the angle that they're, they were actually going with the show, but this, these are the things that I saw. How black people, we just don't deal with our trauma. We don't deal with our trauma. And even people in your own family, if they see you acting any type of way, they will view that trauma as you being crazy. So that just goes, shit is just passed down. These are generational curses of this stigma, just being passed down and passed down. You got to keep your mouth shut about the things that you're going through because people are going to see you as being crazy. Also, what I saw is how, you know, moving on up is not always going to get you... not always, is not going to get you away from any type of hate or racism. Black people, we we um, we battle demons within that um, that helps. We use certain things, particularly what I'm talking about with the what I talked about with the substance and stuff. We battle we battle these demons within, and we find ways to cope with these demons um and it gets to it gets to a, such a a bad point where you holding this stuff in to the point where you get to that end where you where you're rebelling and that's even with like even with the show like the way the show escalated it's like towards the end I kind of felt like the show was trying to make you mad. I really did. I felt like the show, as the way the show escalated, they was trying to make you mad. They wanted wanted you to rebel. They wanted to incite something. They wanted to incite something out of the black people, even the white people. Like, that's how I seen it. Like, if you watch this show, you have to be ready. You have to be ready because it's like I I felt like towards the end they was trying to end to incite something out of out of you whether you're white or black it wanted to 
put you in a certain mind frame of some type of rebellion or or uh, aggression or something. White people really do fear, fear black people. That's what I took from the show. White people really do fear black people, particularly, quote unquote, black magic. They they see they see us as being some. They talk about you know us being animals and stuff like that. But, in actuality, from what I got from the show and what was being being said was they do see us as something otherworldly. They see us as really being something greater than them. And it's so it's so different in their eyes that they you know they gotta look at it as negative, you know. Um what else? Yeah, and there's a misinterpretation of religion. Um from what I got from the show, uh religion, religion has never been good to black people, no matter what we think. <laughs> Religion hasn't been good to us. It's been used against us forever. Um, I feel like that was highlighted in the show. I really do. And I know a lot of people are going to take some type of... <laughs> people ain't going to like me saying that, but religion ain't been good to us. It just hasn't. Religion ain't been good to us. Um... People underestimate uh, the the generational curses. People underestimate those curses. Like black people and white people have our own curses. We have our own curses that particularly... um, When you talk about racism, hate, ignorance, all that shit is a curse passed down, and we're all suffering from it. All that shit is like we're suffering the curse of the curses that we're dealing with. Black people and white people comes from white people. It literally that's 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 how I feel. Like all the shit that we're going through. Is a curse. It's generational curses passed down, and we're dealing with it because of white people, because of racism, hate, and ignorance. It's a curse passed down, and we're all suffering from it. I saw black people idling white people or the idea of being white to escape to a better life. Um... In the end, I mean, it was all about dealing with trauma, PTSD, and mental illness as a whole around racism. Racism, hate, ignorance. That shit is a curse. This is a fucking curse passed down, and we're all suffering from it. Just think about it. Think about from the moment that this this country was, the United States of America was established. It was all, it's all based around racism, hate, ignorance, 
and shit. You might as well throw capitalism and supremacy in there. That shit is all a curse, and we're all suffering from it. We're all suffering from it. But like I say, I the show was good for entertainment purposes, but it is very triggering, and that shit escalates. It's escal it escalates, and it is the imagery in it is is a. It's tough. It's a certain episodes are some rough episodes. It really is, but um. You know, I say watch it if you can handle it. If you can't handle it, don't watch it. Trust me. But I'm going to end the episode here. appreciate everybody listening, tuning in, supporting, sharing the podcast, liking. People who have put reviews on Apple Podcasts and all that other stuff, I appreciate you. Um, thank you for giving me the five stars and stuff. Continue liking, sharing, downloading, all that. Um Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and I'm going to end the song with DMX. Um, this is a song that definitely uh, got me through a lot of tough times when I was dealing with depression. Um, I'm pretty sure it's gotten, it's gotten other people through plenty of tough times, but this is slipping by DMX. I listen to this song, just listening to it now, just taking me back to the moments where I was like really deep into some crazy shit mentally and emotionally, and I didn't think that I was going to get through it to the point where I'm listening to the song now and I'm, my eyes is kind of watering, I'm kind of like feeling the emotions come back up, this song is real right here.
That ain't the half. Uh-huh. Gets worse as I get older. Uh-huh. Actions become bolder. Heart got cold. Uh-huh. Chip on my shoulder that I didn't uh-huh. touch. Didn't need a click, cause I scared it uh-huh. that much. Uh-huh. One deep with the starting uh-huh. for kicks. Catching fixed, throwing bricks, uh-huh. getting by, being slick. Uh-huh. Used to get high just to get by. Used to have to pause. In the morning before I could fly, I ate something. Couple of 40s made me hate something. After some hurt, now I'm ready to take some. Three years later, showing signs of stress. Didn't keep my hair cut or give up how I dress. I'm possessed by the darker side, living the cruddy life. Like this, kept with a bloody knife. Wanna make records, but I'm hold up. Slipping, I'm falling, can't get up. Hey, yo, I'm slipping, I'm falling, I can't get up. Hey, yo, I'm slipping, I'm falling, I can't get up. Hey, yo, I'm slipping. Taste to consider podcast. Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Like, follow, share. Taste to consider podcast on Instagram. Wasn't long before I hit rock bottom. Like, damn, look how that got open like a window. No more endo. Look at a video. Say to myself, that could have been yo. On the TV, believe me. Could be done. Something got to give, got to change this. Now I got a son. I got to do the right thing for shorty. And that means no more getting high, drinking 40. So I get back, looking tight, slick again. Fake, jump back on my again. Nothing but love for those that know how it feel. And much respect to all my kept it real. It's strong, kept it from doing wrong. Who they is, and this is your song. And to my boo, who stuck with it, I do. All the bulls, you get yours. Greatestiamblog.com Mental Health Blog Instagram Greatest.i.am.blog Taste to consider podcast. Rest in peace, DMX.